episode with Duncan. Duncan, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Ross. How are you? Yeah, great, great. How are you? I'm really good. I've just landed from uh, uh, London, so I'm a bit out of it. Yeah, I'm feeling really guilty because of obviously the uh, air miles and carbon footprint. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's, uh, the irony of since publishing a book about... Uh, reuse and sustainability I've uh, clocked up the air miles talking about <laughs> reuse and sustainability but um, yeah I'm, I'll try to get over that that's it so you're um, you've been brought over for this space conference yeah I've come to do a keynote at, um, uh, <coughs> on making waste yeah um, yeah the beginning of the year unfortunately I was um, my mother passed away so I was uh, I was I was on leave sorting stuff out and I came back with about three or four colleagues from the University of Brighton where I work had sent me an email saying look at this conference you've got to go to it so um, yeah I got in touch with Robert who's organized the conference and uh, I was going to do a paper um, submit an abstract but then he said be a keynote which was really exciting so it's quite a a unique conference I mean you know I'm looking out for these things all the time and the the different sort of design practices and um, the consultants that he's bringing together. It's a really exciting conference. Um, yeah. I'm really uh, looking forward to taking part and meeting people. Great. And your um, so so. What's your background? You're an architect, right? And a soy. Uh, soy latte, please. Thank you for the cappuccino. No worries. Yeah, so, I, yeah you're an architect. Yeah, I'm an architect. Um, yeah, I trained in the 1980s, uh, and I studied part-time. And in London? In London, yeah. I was in London, um, and um, I was at uh, North London Poly, and it's now the London Met. And... Um, yeah, I, mean, I had a really good time, um, but um, while I was doing my degree, I was working for architects, and um, I, was work- <laughs> I was working for a, a pop band. I did a, a, an apartment for a pop band called the Thompson Twins, <laughs> and I always remember she was from New Zealand, but, um, uh, and they had, they had a lot of hits in the 80s, but take my word on that one. And, uh, and then we worked for, and did this other job, and the, the, the kitchen... And it was the second kitchen in this massive house for this big uh, developer in London. We did this kitchen and it cost £100,000 in 1988. Yeah, wow. And I was just thinking, what am I doing? Yeah. And um, it was a beautiful kitchen, but it was a lot of wastage. And I just thought, I want to go and work for Greenpeace. I don't want to do this. And then I, I thought, I, I, in architecture, you have to study, uh, do a degree, and then a master's and stuff. And so for my master's, uh, I sort of combined my passion for sustainable, uh, well, not, not sustainable, for the environment, you know, for preserving the environment, enhancing the environment. I combined that with architecture. And uh, I went down to Brighton and studied. And uh, that's where I got my head around sustainable design. Right. You, there wouldn't have been many people to follow in those days. Like you would have. Did you have a lot of people around to see what they were doing, or you were kind of making it up? Um, well, believe it or not, I'm in partnership with um, uh, someone. My partner's called Ian Mackay, and him and I both studied. Uh, had that focus in our study, and um, he's from Canada, and uh, he brought a lot of knowledge with him, and, and um, he 
was quite an inspiration to me, I have to say. So I think you know that's a roundabout answer of saying, yeah, you're right. There weren't, weren't that many people. There was a lot of talk about the hole in the ozone level uh, layer, layer in the early 90s, yeah. and um, and then actually when we graduated from University of Brighton, within a year we we had collaborated and won a competition to design the house of the future, and that was a sustainable off-grid house of the future and we built that in 1994 yeah right so we had this rarefied early i mean we're in our mid to late 20s though so we had this unusual existence where we were building interesting things and then we were there were there was a recession in the uk in the uh, early to mid 90s and so it got a huge amount of press and so we got asked to do other things and then by the late 90s we were working on large projects. We were part of the competition-winning team for the Greenwich Millennium Village, which is still being built now. So that's in Greenwich, in the middle of London, where the, there's the O2 Arena, which was the, uh, which is there, and the, the housing scheme below that was not just housing, schools, everything. Um, we were responsible for, partly responsible for the design of that. So <clears throat> we were in our late twenties and running something called the Innovation Task Force, which was uh, enabled by. John Prescott, who was the Deputy Prime Minister at the time. So we were suddenly being asked to define what sustainability was. And in the case of the Greenwich Millennium Village, it was urban sustainability. Okay. So we were uh, thinking in terms of all the sort of systems that feed a, feed a city and how to turn those linear things into closed loop things. So that was amazing because we were being paid for sort of in the late 90s. Late 90s, yeah. 97, 98. And then we set up our own practice then, called, which is still called BBM, Sustainable Design, and um, that's what we do. And But from the mid-90s, I've done uh, teaching and research around those areas as well. So I've uh, been teaching at those uh, schools at, in London and in Brighton. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so I've been at it for quite a long time. But it's a different environment now. It's really quite exciting now, I think. So, yeah, I guess you must have seen... A few ways, like the, I don't know, like, I guess in the 80s it kind of dropped off a bit, didn't it? Because there was like, you know, the, oh, seven, yeah. the 70s with the oil crisis, it peaked and then it kind of dropped off a bit. Yeah, like, what happened when we when we first did Future House, as we call it, when we built it in 1994, <clears throat> we had a lot of guys sort of my age now, in their 50s, saying we were doing this in the early 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. sort of a bit sort of gruff about it. Um, but we also had um, Robert and Brenda Vale, who went and lived in New Zealand, who are English architects who um, were, were pathfinders, really. They just weren't very exciting designers. I mean, the, you know, the, um, their off-grid house looked like a Victorian um, station master's house with a greenhouse attached to it. So great, but if you're an architect, you know, you, you're not wanting to be told just to, to design something that looks like it's from the 19th century. So, um, you know, in a way, they were not as impactful as they perhaps could have been. But certainly, into the 21st century, it's um, it's a lot more exciting. And at the moment, I think. It's very exciting. Um, so I think since, uh, certainly since in the UK with uh, the Blue Planet program that David Attenborough did uh, nearly a year ago, uh, it's everyone is aware of the waste issue. So Yeah, so because that was the thing, like, so um, in my little stint in this space, I saw things come and go a little bit, but, you know, over the last sort of 15 years, but then... 
um, particularly when I like different countries have different yeah. focuses and I did find it interesting working in London that um, embodied energy and materials was bigger than it was in Australia and the States and like, I guess there's sort of been a focus on materials and the, like yeah. the, the embodied sort of impacts is that like is that I agree. I think, for a while? Yeah I think um from my point of view, it's it's been what I've been focusing on. Um, very quickly, by the late 90s, I was thinking there's so many people onto the energy thing and the carbon uh, reductions and the, you know the carbon offsetting and all that sort of stuff. And I was I was just thinking that you know there's a lot of arguments about um, that and the you know, quite detailed arguments. And I was thinking, well, while you're arguing, actually, meanwhile we're chopping down rainforests and stuff so um, I'd always been interested in um, where materials come from and where they end up so I'm working with um, uh, materials that were as sustainable as possible so even with our first future house that was that was an issue and then uh, since then we've done four um, house projects which have been accidental projects but they've been projects where we can test ideas so 10 years ago I did a program for Channel 4 in the UK which was a live version of Grand Designs. Okay. So I did that. We did that with Kevin McLeod, and it was called the house that Kevin built. So um, the, the sort of narrative of this was that this is the house that he does, he, he built, and um, it was the same pro format, but they uh, as a normal program, but they uh, put it out six nights in a row, and it got good viewing figures. It got five million a night. And, but the, the test was to uh, design a prefabricated building out of organic material. So we, it was 90% material that had grown and captured carbon. Yeah. And the other issue was it's zero. Because it was prefabricated, it was zero waste on site. Right. And we did that. You achieved it. And we did it. Right. And then um, it had to be dismantled. And uh, it, and it, it ended up at the university in Bath. But I was trying to get it to the University of Brighton, where I work, because I wanted to rebuild it slowly with students so they could learn. Anyway, that project didn't happen. It ended up at Bath. But my dean at the Faculty of Art and Humanities in Brighton, two years after that, said, Duncan, I've got the site for the house that Kevin built. And I said, well, I don't have the house that Kevin built anymore. So we were going to, with Kevin, we did a, Kevin McLeod, who does the program, we did a fundraising film, and we were going to, raise funds to do the same thing again because this house was a quite a, uh, an unusual thing um, it, like I said it was completely well, 90% of it was grown material and um, but then we, we had this uh, in 2012 we had this thing I called the Waste Summit and um, um, I just recognised your ring sorry I do <laughs> I know someone else has got no the way. ring really it's similar bullshit. but he's in Canada yeah really <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually a replica of a ring that my father had. Wow. Yeah, how weird is that? My mom, he didn't my lose it to someone in Canada, did he? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah. We have a cousin over there in Montreal. No, it's Vancouver. <laughs> All right, yeah, okay. Uh, well, there's, yeah, this is some family, dark family secrets going on or something. <laughs> anyway, so what, what we did is we... we um, we re we, I met this woman who um, from an organisation called Remade Southeast, and it was a it was remades all over the UK. And these were all, uh, consultants that were encouraging businesses to reduce the amount of raw materials they bought and the amount of waste they created. And she said, Duncan, that's the big issue now. Uh, 
Um, so if you want to do the house that Kevin built in a different way, look, look at um, resource security being a problem for a lot of companies. And the point that any of raw materials are costing more and more and throwing away materials is costing you. So the clever people, clever businesses are staying in the middle and turning a linear take, make, throw away process into a closed loop circular economy. For the people at home, there's some circular hand gestures. <laughs> oh, yes, sorry. Hand gestures going in there. <laughs> yes, at the moment, we take <laughs> materials, we make something out of them, and mere moments later, we throw it away. And that's a linear metabolism. And in a circular economy, which, <coughs> which is something I'm interested in and Ross is interested in, you take that and you turn it back on itself to create a circle and I'm creating a circle with my hand. And so there's no such thing as waste, there's just stuff in the wrong place. And so we then, I then thought, well, with the original house that Kevin built, we were zero waste on site. And that was one of the things. We were proving that if you, pre, if you pre-make something in a factory and assemble it on site, you don't have to waste material. And in the UK at the time, for every five houses built, one house worth of materials getting thrown away on a building site. So 20% of everything arriving on a building site, brand new stuff and uh, demolition debris adds up to 20%. It's been thrown away. We've now reduced that to about 15%, but you know, still every six ha- one house has been thrown away for every six houses built. So we then thought, well, why don't we build a house out of that stuff that people throw away? And so then the house that Kevin built became the waste house, and that's what I did in Brighton. In, got that completed in 2014. But that was built with, with students. So, so I mean, I find that a lot of people, when you say something's built out of waste, they're picturing a, a whole bunch of uh, sort of wooden pallets and things like this. Like, how does it, how does it look? It looks like a cool black 21st century architect designed house and and um, I, that was one of the objectives was to make it look really good so people didn't want to pull it down again unless they could deconstruct it and uh, reassemble it somewhere so it's actually a black tiled house and when you get close to it you realise those black tiles are, are carpet tiles so it's actually carpet tiles torn up off the floor of a, a university building there's squares there's sort of a foot by foot and uh, turn them back uh, round the upside down and they're black on the back. And so we, we covered the, the, the waste house with black tiles. And it's two-story story building. It's got a pitch roof where there's south-facing pitch which faces the, uh, the sun in the UK. That's bigger because that's got solar panels on it. North-facing side is smaller because that's the cold side. Um, yeah, and it's it's designed in a way that it's like this vessel that captures rubbish. So uh, when we when we first um, started designing it, we were thinking we would just use construction waste. So we started with timber and ply. Um, but then uh, a colleague from an organisation called Freegal, which in the UK, that's like a um, UK version of Free Cycle, where people swap stuff. A friend of mine from Australia, from Sydney, called Kat Fletcher, she said, Duncan, why don't you start? This was in 2012. She said, why don't we raise people's awareness of the everyday stuff they throw away? And uh, so she, you know, she said, you know, we were in a place called Brighton and Hove, uh, just in the south, the south coast of the UK. And uh, she said, there must be a million toothbrushes hanging around in people's cupboards. So let's have a campaign where people give us their toothbrushes. And uh, we got about 750 toothbrushes, which is not very big. It's about a sort of, uh, you know, half a foot by half a foot by half a foot cube. 
Um, and we ended up with 25,000 toothbrushes. And we got those collected in only four days. Wow. And because we were working with this organization called Freegal, which is a sort of social network, uh, you know, internet so, uh, uh, platform, um, we got, a, we were beginning to get approached by different companies that had stuff, stuff they didn't need. So, you know, other people's waste is, uh, you know, someone else's waste is uh, someone else's gold sort of thing. So, and this company approached and said, we can get you toothbrushes. And they were actually a, a, an airliner cabin service company cleaning a, airliners as they land at Gatwick Airport, London. And they said, we're only a small company. And in four days, they collected 25,000 toothbrushes just to, out of cleaning out airliners. And uh, I deliberately flying over to Adelaide, I've kept the toothbrush that Singapore Airlines gave me because everything they give you a toothbrush and most people don't use them. They never get used, they just get thrown away. So we, we started collecting stuff like that to use as low-grade insulation. So the waste has got very fat walls, it's got 400 millimeter deep void that we basically made the, the waste house so it's a, a timber frame, it's got columns and beams, big uh, columns and beams made out of ply and timber that we got out of skips. And then between those columns, we got these boxes that are like fly cupboards. And um, they're 400 millimeters deep, 900 millimeters wide, and floor to ceiling height. And we filled those full of things, mainly plastic. And it's stuff that were people you wouldn't believe still existed. So we got 4,000 floppy disks from the 1990s, early 90s, <laughs> early to mid 90s. Um, we've got, from the 80s, we got VHS videos. We could have filled the volume of the house up with videos. These are things we've forgotten about. We don't realize they're still out there. Most plastic ever created is still with us. Only about 10% has gone. That's burnt. The rest is with us. Plastic's only been made for the last, not even 100 years yet. But most of it is with us. And now everybody, this was in 2012 when we were conceptualizing this. So since then, everybody has become a lot more aware of plastic. But the waste house became this thought-provoking vessel that contains problem materials or problem products actually yeah so you know plastic is an amazing material it's just we're not very good as humans to design its end of life uh, scenario it doesn't it doesn't have one um, but then we got interesting things like um, you know uh, we got two tons of denim jeans and denim jeans are great insulators by the way and oh, yeah and um, we got that from a, a UK company that imports ready-made jeans from China and then cuts off the legs and sells them as shorts. So we got two tons of denim legs. But, you know, we got, we got Christmas decorations. Oh, we got, we got um, wallpaper still in its plastic cellophane wrapper. We got, um, a, we got 500 rolls of wallpaper for nothing. So you jam this all on the shell and, yes. and use that for insulation. Yeah. And, uh, like, I mean, how, do you, how did you know that it was going to be a good insulator? <laughs> really good question, man. <laughs> tell you about the wallpaper in a minute. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I've been an architect constructing buildings out of unusual stuff. Like for, uh, for about 15 years before we did the waste house, I majored on rammed earth, straw, organic materials, um, 
because I wanted my buildings to compost at the end of the life and also be non-toxic and inert. And so I know how buildings go together. I'm a, uh, a good building technician as well as a designer. And so that basically that knowledge which most architects have, this is why I think architects and designers can save the planet actually because we know how things are put together. So we're the best people to unpack these things. And so in the case of the waste house, what would happen is that cats and other people would say, I've got this stuff, I've got this stuff. I'd have ten, ten, a list of 10 things a day, which I then had to think, right, those vinyl banners from that festival, I don't know what we can use those at mo- for, mo- for the moment. Then like two days later, oh, of course, but we can just use those to protect the, the, the building site, you know, from the rain while it's, uh, you know, while, while the building's just a frame. And then after a while, I, I got to speak into uh, an insulation company. And I said, "These banners could they be, could they be the permanent vapor control layer that a timber frame house has to have? So that's this sort of membrane that goes on the inside of a house that you never see, but it, it makes it airtight and, and makes it perform properly. And so we ended up using 600 of these vinyl banners as a permanent vapor control layer. And then there's 25 other stories like that. So because I'm a building technician and a, a sort of a bit of a building physicist as well. I know the role the different normal conventional materials have in a building. And so then if someone gives me the unconventional thing, if it's got the same DNA in effect, then we can re- replicate it. And that was basically how my role when we were building this site, uh, the, the waste house, was to find solutions for the problems, which were, I've got these video cassettes, what can we do with them? Or I've got these jeans, what can we do with them? Or uh, I've got these um, bicycle inner tubes. That, you know, we know that the bicycle cycle shops in Brighton break down, throw away thousands of inner tubes every year. Of course they do. We use them for soundproofing between the floors, and we sealed all window frames and door frames with bicycle inner tubes. So our building's airtight. The waste house creates 30% more energy than it consumes. It's designed to what they call passive house standards. It, it produces 30% more. Yeah, because it's got brand new. Photovoltaic solar panels on the roof. So we did make a decision with the windows and the solar panels to have new. Okay, new I was going to ask, yeah, like if you built your windows. Or? Yeah, no, the, we, we could have done, but we, the windows are treble glazed and brand new, and actually, we. We would have had to got the windows first and then design around them, and for various reasons, which this interview uh, doesn't need to know about really, it's not that interesting, we couldn't do that. So I knew we had to get brand new windows. Yeah. So in terms of the 10% of the waste house that isn't waste is new windows, wiring, plumbing, people won't use second-hand plumbing, wiring's a bit difficult. That's electric wiring, cable in, that should be something that we can we can get over but we can't at the moment in terms of using second hand wiring yeah um but um yeah so the, the waste house is on campus at the um Sarah! school of architecture uh, sorry school of art and humanities and and we use it as a teaching space so we've got 3d craft and design and architecture and an ma in sustainable design they all use it as a sort of workshop and a and it's sort of left unfinished, so there are design challenges for for students. So, and also design problems. You know, we've got these little windows that are about three inches high and six inches wide that give you a little glimpse into the wall of the waste house, so you can see. 4,000 DVDs, cassettes, 
the, the, the VHS videos or whatever they are. What are we going to do with those? They're still there. They haven't gone away. So um, that's the idea. We get the house was built um, by construction students and design and architecture students coming together. So that's one of, for me, one of the big stories behind it was the pedagogic tool that it was, you know, the, the learning tool with volunteers. But we also had um, really young school uh, kids coming to see it. So the waste house would be open every Wednesday morning, the building site. And we had over 750 school kids come over a year. And so a lot of people learn about it. And, you know, we've got kids now who are just graduating from their carpentry school who the only project they've ever worked on is the waste house. So they're now going to go on to normal building sites saying, what are you doing? You don't need to throw that stuff away. So that, that's, for me, been one of the most successful things. And it's also ongoing. I've got a research project now. We're actually taking... The, the waste house was designed so you could take bits of the wall away and replace it with other stuff. So we, we're testing and monitoring the performance of the waste house walls as they are but then I'm, I've got another project where we're in the UK um, bedding duvets uh, um, pillows they, that doesn't get they, they don't get recycled or reused and um, so we're turning we're getting duvets and um, turning them into insulation for housing and you don't have to do anything with them apart from clean them because they've got a TOG rating which is the insulating rating yeah. so we're going to test the performance of some duvets, take out some DVDs, put in the duvets. But interestingly, on the outside, we're taking away the, the house's um, cladding carpet tiles. And um, we're going to remove some of the carpet tiles and replace them with new tiles made out of oyster shells. Yeah, right. So we've got, um, and this is what this is something we're learning from, we're all remembering from the Romans actually in the UK because um, they, they invented cement and they made it out of uh, sh shell um, shellfish shells are basically 95% calcium carbonate, which is what cement is. And um, so um, what we're doing is firing some of the waste shells from restaurants and creating quicklime, adding water to it, and then you get, you get this chemical reaction. But then for the aggregate, the sort of sandy, pebbly bit that you have to add to uh, a, a concrete, we're using smashed up oyster shells. So it's 100% oyster shells. And we're getting it, we're going to clad it, we're casting that material into tile. Um, Hang, we're going to hang those on the outside of the waste hole. Wow. So that's a low... What we're doing is locating local waste streams or waste flows local to the waste house and say, look, we can do something with that. We can do something. We've got one restaurant in Brighton that produces 50,000 50, oyster shells a year, 1,000 a week. And they... And so you can make cement from yeah, you can make shellfish. Yes, yeah. And I, I, I've got the figures, and I'll be quoting them at unmaking waste. But um, I think it's something like 20 million tons of um, shellfish shells go into the oceans every year. So we're throwing away calcium carbonate. At the same time, we're digging up yeah. and destroying the environment, digging up limestone right. to make calcium carbonate. Yeah. I mean, it's just that's the sort of nutting up that thing yeah. that. Um, fascinates me because those are actually those weird, weird anomalies are quite straightforward to fix at one level when you just say that was it's the same with fertilizers if you see that you know so yeah so, so do you think because um, this is all like uh, absolutely amazing and even particularly just as a demonstration project to show people what's possible to create awareness yeah, yeah. and there's so many layers of why these kinds of projects are incredible 
but I guess the first thing that people criticise in these sorts of things is like, yeah, 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 but you know, how long did it take? How much did it cost? And you know, like obviously it is a demonstration project, so I don't want to challenge that side. I can tell but, you that. But okay, okay, well we can get into that. But also particularly, I mean, I think what's interesting as well is like, you know, do you know of that sounds like an interesting technology with, with concrete, but do you know of other technologies that are replicable for you know, there's a shitload of building going on around around the place right now. And like, you know, the cost effective techniques that allow us to build towers, to you know, build bridges, to, you know, like that. Yes. I think I mean the the, the calcium carbonate oyster shell is quite significant because yeah. concrete is a something like ten percent of every built thing at the moment is, is concrete, so um, and maybe more. Um, and concrete's also a huge um, environmental burden in terms of uh, pollution and carbon emissions. But um, uh, yeah, the, wait, the waste house is built in a year, which is the time we normally take to build a house. I mean, practice and I do houses for people. And it took the normal time. costs the normal price as well. Where, uh, building with waste doesn't save you money because you might get the material at a discount, um, but you're paying... Um, more on labour, yeah, because you're denailing something or cleaning something or whatever. So it's, a, it's you've got more labour. But in terms of what we can learn from it, um, uh, I think what what we can learn from the waste house is one thing that designers and architects can be resourceful. Yeah. And uh, you, you can build this thing, which is the uh, same budget, as I said, as normal. But also, I think you can learn that with real projects, um, you can be resourceful and not throw stuff away. Yeah. I mean, the way that projects work, especially in London, in the UK, and from a UK perspective, I mean, in the UK, basically, you've got London as the sort of... Uh, not it's slowing down a bit, but the huge economy and everything else around the UK is sort of normal. Yeah. And outside of London, people don't want to throw things away so much. But um, I think when we can get out of the habit of destroying materials at a construction site to keep it alive, yeah, we, quantities of those, people estimate the costs of buildings are assuming you're throwing away 20% of everything that arrives on a building site. Well, that's mad. If you're a hard-nosed developer, why would you want to throw, spend money on that stuff that gets thrown away? So I think more and more people are interested in off-site construction. Yeah. So you don't have waste on site for lots of but for financial reasons. It makes economic sense. There's a lot of people interested in this idea of what a circular economy is. So people are beginning to, again, because it, it, back in history, we've always done this, is design things for reuse. So reassembly, remanufacture. So you design the building so it can be a material store for the future. Yeah. And that means that in 30 years' time, when a commercial building's at the end of its life, it's not. It, you can deconstruct it can, and it can make other buildings. So for the investors, yeah. the people put their money into that building in the first place, the end, its end of life after 30 years is not where you lose money, you yeah. gain money again because you've got this material bank. So, the, like, I think we all know there's a lot of bullshit and a lot of talk in this industry, you know, like people people like to talk about pictures on yeah. concepts and yeah. stuff like this. And I'm personally quite interested in, the, like, the idea of normalising things and just, like, rip out the term sustainability, rip out the term innovation, get rid of that, and yeah. just, you know, when these things become, solar panels have become normal now. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. like, you know, like, when, you know, when does that happen for waste? And I guess... For, for 
for me in relation to like in some ways I think about normalizing things is when it becomes mandatory as well and like what's interesting that happened in the UK and you would know a lot more about this than I would but my understanding was that they made it mandatory for net positive buildings in the UK and then they stripped that they did is that what happened they being the, cons- the Labour government did and they yeah. said by 2016 all new houses would have to be zero carbon neutral or something yeah and uh, that went out with the Labour Party so um, I'm, I've got quite strong opinions about this we can wait for our governments, our national governments, to do something about it, and nothing's going to happen. Yeah. I, I actually think where it's happening, and for example, if you look at the UK at the moment, five years ago, 5% of our energy was renewables. This year, it's going to be nearly 30%. Yeah. I mean, that's a massive change. Yeah. Government would take credit for it, but it's doing absolutely no investment into yeah. renewables at the moment. Quite the opposite. You know, we're, we're promoting fracking at the moment. And um, but it's happening anyway. Huge wind farms have been, been installed around the UK's coast. And so I think um, it, with the commercial sector is, is in there. It understands where there's money to be made. Yeah. Would you invest in coal now? Who is investing in coal? Yeah. Okay, I, I read the, uh, your papers today when I arrived, and you know, you're, you're kick-starting some, uh, breathing some life into your, your, your coal mines, but you've got vast resources here in, the, in Australia. Over in Europe, we don't have those resources. And actually, in the United States, for different reasons, they're not wanting to use those resources. Trump cannot kickstart that coal industry. He's wanting to, but it's not happening. Renewables is a huge, huge growth area. So it's making economic sense. The the same with um, designing out waste. It makes no economic sense to throw stuff away. Absolutely no. If If Apple can say at the end of their iPhone's life, it's got value. They'll want it. They'll want to just lease those iPhones. I don't, in fact, I guess because they're a trillion-dollar company now, uh, in the short time they don't care. But we do have 95% of the technology to remanufacture all smartphones, and you know, that's where you got your daft statistics. Most people, you know, it's easier to mine a. You uh, get more gold out of a ton of iPhones than you do out of the ton of the best gold ore out there. And, and I guess there is that side where. You know, I sort of also agree in that I believe in, you know, the in some ways the financials are sorted out eventually. And, you know, consumer demand speeds things up as well. But um, it is interesting how governments are probably the, of the three, they're really the ones well, that are lacking. Well, what? And, and also just the idea that, like... Do we want to wait that long for it to, when it becomes totally financially viable for all these things? Because, I mean, to me, cities, for example, should be zero waste now. You know, like, well, this is what like I, I didn't mention. That I, I think at the moment I'm investing my hope in cities, city-states, yeah. which are powerful again. And, uh, I mean, certainly... Um, uh, that's where, you know, in, in Europe you've got cities who are leading. So uh, the Netherlands uh, say they want to be uh, zero waste by 2040. So Amsterdam says, well, we'll be zero waste by 2030. Um, California has just overtaken uh, the UK as the fifth biggest economy in the world. It's got amazing, amazingly ambitious targets for being uh, carbon neutral, uh, waste-free. Yeah. Very short timescales. I, I mean, you know, I'm thinking I don't know how it's going to 
to do it all by 2030. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it's saying, you know, it's saying uh, we'll ignore Trump. We're more powerful, actually. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting times. I think things are happening because I think a lot of people, yeah, we're feeling the water lapping around our ankles now in terms of climate change. But the plastic thing really scared people. I think, I think climate change you can just sort of deny and debate about, and that's why I'm not that interested in the debate actually. Yeah. Uh, I'm in, I'm concerned about the fact that you know we lost our last northern white rhino male this year. You know, I mean, you know, humans are not very good at managing resources, and that's what scares me. So I think you've got to we've got to um, realise that it's resource management is the big big deal. And uh, you know, I'm really inspired by you know even a, a, the AMB Amro Bank, which is in the Netherlands. Uh, I, I was in uh, Amsterdam last November in this circle pavilion, this 18 million euro building that had been designed for as a material store for the future, so it can be unbolted and uh, reassembled or become a material supply for other buildings. And it was a bank that had built this building. This banker said, we've got a portfolio of 600 billion uh, euros of property around the world. And, but we want to be known. We, we're telling our uh, clients now that we're not just a financial bank, we're a materials bank. So they're completely getting this idea that you don't want to be throwing materials away. You want your building at the end of its life to be valuable as a pile of materials for somebody else. Right. So... You just got off the flight this morning. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but maybe you could end on explaining that a little bit. Is what is this concept of buildings as material? Like, well, is, is that is that something where you see that this is all heading? And yeah, I mean, it's something that when when resort back in the day, hundreds of years ago, or until a uh, hundred years ago where resources were valuable, a bit of timber or brick or whatever it was was valuable. Buildings were designed so they could be taken down without being smashed up and reassembled somewhere else. So in the UK where I'm from, agricultural buildings, even um, homes and uh, shops in high streets in historic towns, they're timber frames. And if you look at the timber frames, they've always got these other notches and things. And that's where they had a previous life as a timber frame for another building, a bigger building perhaps, or a smaller building. So it's quite straightforward, okay, to bolt timber together or put it together with timber pegs or nail it. And so it's easy to pull it apart. And the same was with bricks. But in the 20th century, bricks were stuck together with cement-based mortar, which is stronger than the bricks. So suddenly a brick building becomes one big monolith. And when you want to knock it down, you have to smash it down and all you get is rubble. But in the UK, buildings before 1910 have a lime-based mortar, which means the bricks are stronger than the mortar. And when you, when you want to pull down a, a 19th century or earlier building, you can just lift the bricks off. And you've got these lovely bricks, which everybody in the UK wants to use, second-hand bricks. So it's having that mentality. In the UK, Georgian and Victorian buildings are not... They don't tend to be demolished anymore. They're just convertible. They're so easy to convert and adapt into offices, back into homes, apartments, whatever, to extend. They're very adaptable. And so that's the way forward, really, is to make sure our buildings are adaptable. And like I said, not one homogenous monolith, but 
a kit of parts so you can unbolt them at the end of their life and reuse them again. The, the idea for a circular economy is you design things for perpetual reuse. At the moment, you get someone like BMW saying our cars are 80% recyclable, but not into BMW cars. They're recyclable into aggregates for roads. So in a circular economy, they'd be 80% reusable as parts for new BMW cars. Yeah. So eventually, we'll be building buildings that are 100% reusable. Yeah. 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 And it, you use the right term, reusable, not recyclable, because when you recycle something, you smash it up, mash it up, reheat it, and there's a lot of energy and pollution goes into that. So the idea is that you reuse things. And so how, how far off do you think we are on that? For say, you know, I mean, I, I just always look to major buildings because they seem like been annoying you know, since I got a problem. <laughs> but like, say, 100% reusable tower, like, you know. When is we could do it tomorrow. We, we know how. This is the thing that uh, I think is exciting. I could say frustrating, but it's not. It's exciting. Is that we can do it now. We know how to. A building's a kit of parts anyway. And, you know, I, I did a seven-story office building uh, ten years ago where the steel frame was bolted together, yeah. not welded together. And the steel fabricators, it was a really old guy, and he said, God, I haven't done one of these since the 60s. It's bolted together. And as so one day it can be unbolted. It's quite straightforward. It's not a lot of, it's not that challenging. And when you talk to people who know a lot about tall buildings, the, the Achilles heel, the weakness in tall buildings is the glazing system. It's not the glass. It's the neoprene joint between the different bits of glass. That fails after 15 or 20 years. So what's the solution then? A different jointing system. So again, if you're into the real details of a building, you can deconstruct them in your mind and then apply that process. Where it doesn't deconstruct is where you have to redesign. It won't deconstruct for whatever reason. I'm working with... Um, um, a team of architects and building deconstructors called Rotor, R-O-T-O-R, in Brussels. They're amazing because they can deconstruct the nastiest 1990s commercial office building and they take it down one screw at a time and they sell the stuff online. Yeah, wow. So well, that's what I was going to ask, actually, is that, look, I, I can see your logic in terms of... Um, the cost of waste and also the cost of wasted materials for a yeah. developer now, you know, 20%, it's, it's a waste, it's wasting the money. Yeah. But, like, for someone to choose to build something that's not reusable versus reusable, and if it can come at a cost premium, you know, like, do you, do you think that's just going to happen itself, or do you think that's something that should be mandated? Um, I think it's something that should be mandated in law. I, 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 I just think you, sh you can have a, um, a whole sort of resource plan. It's like a waste management plan. On, yeah. You have waste management plans on site, and you have one that's for the whole. Um, it, it really, actually, this is just thinking of it. You, you, no one's asked me that question before. I mean, there's a whole thing with um, in, in Europe and the UK where you have to um, have this uh, whole construction management plan as a designer, <coughs> and, you can, and you can have that for resource management as well so you would you would hand over the building and saying 
this is how you can deconstruct it. This is the value of the building. I mean, people are already doing that at the moment. There are these things called building pa uh, materials passports. And so that's, there's, there's this other thing in construction which is called BIM, which is yes, it's building information modeling. So you know how much there is about, uh, how many quantities of materials, how they perform, the whole thing of your, your building. And, and BIM models, and all new buildings have BIM models now. Built into that BIM model can be these material passports. So when you inherit a building, you know the potential for the building to be reused or recycled or just plain demolished. Yeah. So with existing buildings, there could there will be bits that you just no need to be demolished. So maybe a, a building that's built now that's you know that you can't deconstruct. Um, maybe in the future will have less value than a building. Yes, built. because it's got no end of life strategy apart from costing you a lot of money to get rid of. So you just built a piece of waste rather than building some Lego that you can then yeah, yeah. just give to your yeah. friends. And, what, and what's, I guess, um, what's interesting is the, la the sort of language of the architecture that you get from the different processes. How, how similar or not will they be? I mean, I, I don't think they need to be that different. I mean, you could decide to express it, yeah, um, yeah. which would be quite interesting. And cost? Do you think that's a, a big factor? I think initially, with all new stuff, it's going to cost more while people scratch their heads and think, how? Even though, you know, really? So that's a bit the cost. It's the thinking time. The thinking time for the designers. They don't want to do it because they get the normal fee for the next building and they haven't got the time to yeah. perhaps... Uh, Lead in, but there are pioneers, there are pathfinders doing this stuff, so because I can I, learn off that. I definitely find that's always one of those lines in a presentation is like you know, or a pitch for a competition is designed for disassembly. Yeah, but no one really does it. No, <laughs> hey, it's sort of it's pretty, pretty amazing. Well, that's why I mean, uh, in the book I wrote, The Reuse Atlas, I deliberately. Uh, did a plug then, but also <laughs> I deliberately yeah, yeah, yeah. interviewed about 50 people, designers and makers who were in the world of architecture, fashion, product design, who'd done this sort of thing. So my question was, how? How on earth? How did you get it past legislation? How did you get it costed? Why? What was the? You know, did the client know, or, or were they supportive, or did they pay a premium for this? What were the real problems? And with a lot of these pioneer projects, there are huge problems just because it's the lack of knowledge out there. But uh, collectively, human beings have the knowledge. We can sort this problem, of, you know, the uh, environmental problem out tomorrow. We know what to do. It's just collectively actually getting on with it. And, uh, Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good way to leave it. Okay, that's thanks. a big set of three times.